The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined by Kate Andrews, our economics editor, and Mark Asquith, who is a fund manager who recently wrote an excellent article that did very well on The Spectator website, saying that he thought inflation was over. And that's what we're going to be talking about. But first of all, Kate, I just wanted to come to you on the sort of the, the economic story of the week from America, which is that the Biden administration appears to be getting quite a lot of flack over the fact that it's redefined recession. Recession, I understand, used to mean technically two quarters of consecutive negative growth and no longer does. Kate, were you surprised by the Biden administration doing this? Well, not terribly surprised because the last thing the Biden administration wants to have to say out loud is the R word. They don't want to admit that the U.S. is going into recession or, frankly, in recession under their watch. But this is really a semantics debate. As you say, Fred, many are saying the technical definition of a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. But it's being pointed out that officially the National Bureau of Economic Research declares a recession in the United States. And they haven't done so yet. And it's thought that they may not do so because the labor market is so tight. So looking at other factors will play into their decision as to whether or not they're going to technically define a recession. I mean, my response to all of this is almost so what? Americans are dealing with close to double digit inflation. They're dealing with interest rate hikes. They've dealt with two consecutive quarters of negative growth. There may be more to come. So your average American is certainly going to feel like they're in recession. And for Frankly, I think that's what matters. Is it simplistic of me to think that, while obviously not welcome, a recession might be the only way of getting inflation under control? Some will make that argument. I think I just I just take a step back and you know look at the situation that we've been in, and, and I think it's to some extent inevitable. You can't turn off the global economy and turn it back on again like a light switch several times over the course of two years and think there aren't going to be any repercussions for that. And then on top of that, you know, I think all the stimulus packages in the U.S. will have contributed to inflation. But that last one Biden did nearing two trillion dollars when the economy was clearly opening back up and activity was not normal, but starting to return to normal had huge inflationary impact as well. So, you know, I I just look at it and and I think anybody who, who couldn't see this coming was in perhaps a temporarily happy state of denial, but it's catching up with them quite quick. Mark, let's move on to inflation. You are optimistic, are you not, about inflation? You think that we may have reached the peak and you, you were an inflationist not so long ago, two, three years ago. Yeah. And you've, <laughs> you've come to a different view. Can you explain why? Yes, I've changed my mind. I haven't gone to conferences four years ago banging on about how inflation was coming and it was you know, going to be this big secular event for a decade. And I, I was a little bit early saying that, but, but now it's here 
not through pure custard contrarianness. I, I think I've changed my mind. So we've, we've had a couple of years of inflation and normally that's all you get. You normally get two years and 10. And there's a historical fact to look at. But I guess the reason I changed my mind was because like many people, I was very focused on the shortages, real world constraints issues behind inflation. And having watched what happened during the trade wars, particularly with China, where there were concerns, I had concerns inflation was going to be the result of the tariffs, didn't happen. They simply shifted production offshore. And then during COVID, everyone said, you know, shortages were going to be terrible. There weren't going to be enough face masks. You can't walk outside for tripping over a, a face mask now. The real world economy with 7 billion people in it just pumps out everything we need quite reliably. And if you can't make it in China, they'll go and make it in Brazil, Turkey or uh, somewhere else, all of which have got very cheap um, exchange rates now. So I guess that's why I, I changed my mind. And I take the traditional line now that inflation is a purely monetary phenomenon. It's just about the amount of money being pumped out by the central banks. And the US central bank is, is pulling that back now and is raising rates. So, you know, we, we've, we've hit all the key bells that normally mean inflation has peaked. We've had oil at 120 and it, copper and gold are all heading down now. And there's plenty of other ways that we can deal with inflation, which are, some of which are political. And I also think there's ways that we can avoid a, a recession or, or a crash. Do you think then that in this globalised world in which we live, globalisation goes back and forth a little bit, but we've now reached the stage then where actual serious inflation is impossible. Yes. Sustained I think unless inflation. you go right back to outright socialism or, or national blocs and, and potentially outright war in which certain parts of the world economy are, are simply blocked off from each other, real world inflation is, is pretty much impossible. And if you look at long-term old price graphs or or anything else, that tends to be the case across almost any era, that as soon as we discover there's a shortage of something, we either create more supply or we create a substitute technology. So energy is a perfect example at the moment. Oil prices have hit 120. Everyone hates Putin. You know, no one wants him to be benefiting from this. And Biden is now releasing the tariff restrictions on Chinese solar panels. So, you know, we're going to get huge substitute technology and innovation allowed back in on the back of globalisation. The other thing politicians can do is, is deregulate. There's a lot of excess costs being created by government regulation at the moment. And I think, I think even the Democrat administration sees that's a, an option. They're scared of inflation. And like I say, there's more, there's more offshoring that can happen. So yeah, I do think it's near on impossible in, in the globalised modern world we live in. Kate, do you think Mark is a hopeless optimist? I so enjoyed Mark's piece. And, you know, Mark's the expert in this virtual room, Fred. So I wouldn't dare make a prediction like he has. When I read your piece, Mark, you know, I come to a lot of similar conclusions in the sense that I am very hopeful that sort of our, our globalized community 
and our, our rapid ability now to sort of fill in the gaps does mean good things for, you know, the, the future of consumerism and, and our ability to get inflation under control. And post-COVID, you know, I've, I've been very encouraged that there was always going to be that initial shock and inflation spike because of the supply chains that have come offline. And we had to get them back online. And that process is still working itself out, but it seems to be going relatively well. So I, I do share a lot of his optimism. I guess I would just probably draw slightly more of a distinction between the US's position to get inflation under control and Europe's. Because while we all had to deal with coming back online after COVID, I think the energy crisis is going to play out in a much more painful way across Europe, at least for the next few years. The US is in a much stronger position, especially if, say, leadership were to change to improve its energy independence. Europe is simply not. And you also have, I think, a growing sense in the UK, at least, perhaps not as much in mainland Europe, but certainly in the UK, if we look at the Tory leadership election, for example, of candidates trying to outcompete each other when it comes to how fast we're going to decouple from countries, not just Russia, but China too. And so I think there are moral merits to a lot of what they're saying, but they are not acknowledging yet the huge short-term economic consequences and pain that would come along with that. I mean, there's it doesn't matter what you think of the situation, there's just no denying it. And so I would not be surprised if for quite a few years to come now, you had all of Europe desperately scrapping for the bits of energy that it can get its hands on. So while I think a lot of prices will come down because of the COVID effects on inflation, I am preparing at least, and I, you know, I hope it doesn't turn out to be the case, that we are going to be grappling with higher energy prices for quite some time to come. Because even if, say, Putin and Ukraine were to come to some kind of agreement to de-escalate, to find the off-ramp, all those phrases we've been using, I see a United Kingdom and a mainland Europe that are still far more hesitant to start purchasing oil and gas from Russia again. So I think we might be in for a more medium-term struggle with energy prices, which perhaps makes me slightly less optimistic than Mark. One thing I've always thought was a, a, the big deflationary force was unemployment, actually. And hasn't that been a, a major problem in the sense for inflation? Obviously, it's good for people to have jobs and indeed to have wage growth, which we've seen. But that is why I thought, uh, I think we had Michael Lind on this podcast once who said this, that because we've had a little bit of wage growth, which we didn't have in 2008, I don't think, that is feeding into the inflationary crisis. Is that not the case, Kate? Well, this has been more of a phenomenon in the States so far where I think there's bigger discussion of of wage spirals. It's a bit of a complicated picture, Fred, because we have had wage growth. One of the technical reasons we had wage growth, if you looked at the spreadsheets and you saw wage growth throughout the COVID crisis, part of that was that a lot of people in lower paid jobs were losing their jobs. So the average wage was rising simply because those people weren't in work anymore, which is not not the way you want to get that number up. We have had some wage growth, but you know when you compare it to inflation, these are still, in real terms, wage cuts. But I think there's been a lot more concern about 
about the inflationary wage spirals that you might see in the States. We haven't really experienced that in the UK yet. And of course, in the UK, you know, we do have record low unemployment again, but that does not account for the 5 million working age Brits who are just simply out of work and aren't being counted towards those figures. So I think the picture is quite complicated, but it has been more of a an inflationary issue in the States so far than it has in Britain. Mark, you touched on China earlier, which you've looked at quite closely. Isn't China the real problem here in that the globalised economy, which, as you say, is an amazingly deflationary force, is reliant on China and China is no longer a reliable global partner, if it ever was? Let me be gloomy and put that to you. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think was my first starting point when I was an inflationist, actually, was at that point, China A was becoming a bit too expensive. It was still, you know, we were still getting all our goods exports from it, but it was getting pricey. And B, there were, as we know, big geopolitical issues between the US and and, and actually more particularly, although they don't mention it, Europe and China. It's um, Europe's lunch, Europe's manufacturing lunch that China eats. You know, the US innovates, China imitates, and Europe regulates, and it also manufactures quite a lot. So yeah, there are those issues. I think what made me realise I was wrong on the purely economic inflationary effects of confrontation with China or issues with China was that even back during the trade wars, they, they happily outsourced or their partners outsourced or even, you know, Gap and US companies outsourced to, to Southeast Asia, to Thailand, to Malaysia. I remember doing a tour and, and seeing the, the factories going up all over Malaysia and Thailand. And right now, there's the option of doing that in, in Brazil, Turkey, Mexico, all of whom have seen their, their currencies plunge. Equally, China is you know, becoming very good at automating, so it can, it can produce much more cheaply without worrying about its, its human labour labor costs going up. And that, that, is, that is a fact for the whole world, and it's producing automation equipment that can solve other labour inflationary issues elsewhere. But I think the big news story probably in the next year or so is going to be around China economically. And that will be, you know, when rates go up, as they are going up now in the US, which sets the rates everywhere, there's a big explosion somewhere. Something gets found out. It basically is a debt bubble somewhere that gets exploded. And everyone goes, oh no, it's the end of the world economically. In 2008, that was the US housing crisis. I think now it's going to be Chinese property. You know, that is a huge, huge debt bubble, which we everyone has known about and talked about for ages, but it's only now that rates are going up on the back of inflation that it's, it's really going to get, it's, it's going to explode. And we saw, you know, a significant bust yesterday. So what everyone will say is, China's now over, you know, this is responsible for X percent of GDP growth. China itself will get worried about it and maybe we'll get more complacent about China. It will be the wrong response. The fact is that China's private sector is humming away very nicely alongside that. And China used to be a very dirigiste state economy. But in the last 10, 15 years, there's some incredibly strong, innovative and hyper-competitive industries coming out of China and, and essential ones like, like new energy industries, like, like solar panels, which they dominate. So there will be a big hoo-ha about China. But just to go back to my core point, I've talked about the benign disinflationary forces of globalisation, innovation and deregulation. This will be a malign 
disinflationary force, a huge Chinese property bust, you know, we're talking trillions really, is going to exert a huge downward pressure on inflation. And that would be another reason why no one will be talking about inflation in, in a year. They'll all be talking about a deflationary bust in the end of the world because of deflation. But there's been quite big scares about the Chinese property bubble for, for quite a long time now. And it seems like yes. the Chinese government will always do whatever it takes to rescue it. I mean, do you think the bubble will be so big that the Chinese, even the Chinese state won't be able to cover it? Yes, I think so. If you look at the trillions of dollars of, of debt there, that, you know, it's just, I mean, some of them is in nothing housing developers, you know, the 200, $300 million market cap, and yet they've got billions of, of debt. Mm. It's totally irrational. And I think if China has got the confidence in its, its core economic strength, which it deserves to have, it's now set on the right trajectory on its private sector, which is scale-based, innovative manufacturing and goods, but increasingly services too. It can probably afford this. People won't think that, but it can't really afford to keep it going much longer. So I'm sure it will come in and support a number of the larger developers, but it can't support all of these smaller developers, which have almighty debt burdens. And you're quite right, people have been talking about China property bust forever, and then we have these little periods where it happens. I think it will be bigger this time, both because the accumulated debt has been larger, also because the interest rate hikes have been pretty pretty sharp and, and swift this time. And I think maybe the Chinese government will have the confidence to, to let some developers go under. What I like about your point here is that it's revealed that you're still fundamentally gloomy. <laughs> in the, in the, even your optimism is because you think something about inflation is because you think something... Well, I, don't, I would say I've got three benign optimistic points about why inflation will come under control. Globalisation, I think, is, is fundamentally actually a positive force for all, which is a contentious point. Innovation, you know, I think is being allowed back in, whether it's telemedicine or nuclear fusion or green energy. And, and offshoring is going to be good for countries like Brazil and Turkey, and also for us, because we'll, we'll benefit from those two, because those are all good things. And I th- also think deregulation, which will imply perhaps a smaller government, would also be a good thing. So that's three, maybe four optimistic things. But you're right, there's one great big gloomy thing on the other side of the scales, which is the, the China property bust. And, and you can't talk about economics without really being gloomy at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that perhaps politics does become the problem then? Because we we have seen a move away from global thinking among politicians. There is the much talked about rise of nationalism. There is protectionism against China. I mean, do you think that the key driver of deflation that you've described is actually being politically stopped? Yeah, I think during that period of, frankly, Trumpian, understandable Trumpian sort of conservatism and inward-looking erection of trade barriers, which I think was was more cosmetic than it ever was effective, and perhaps a play to the crowds. I mean, a lot of Mm. politics is just pure theatre. We step back mentally from the many benefits that, frankly, globalisation and and interaction hold. And I think, you know, the core old liberal tenets of free trade, small government and peace are, for me, the best ones and have led to the most productive parts of our history. But we definitely step back from that for very understandable reasons. Mm. I mean, the interesting thing in the UK is that although it looked like we were following a a similar pattern to what the the US was doing, in theory, we were stepping outside a protectionist 
customs union and opening ourselves up to the world, which was actually different from what Trumpian America was doing mm. in terms of, of free trade. But, but the Tories just, although they had a good idea, slightly fudged the execution of it. But, <laughs> but they, those were slightly different, slightly different approaches. The block approach, I think, is a dangerous one. And the idea that we all need to block together in the EU or, or NATO, whatever it is, against some other big bloc. Seems to me that's how we got into World War I. And as soon as we, we hurtled towards a proper hot war situation, which is certainly you know, a, a 30% probability over the next 10, 20 years, then yes, you can start talking about real inflationary forces coming back in, in the real world, because you're blocking yourself off and deliberately trying to strangle your opponent's economic supplies and, and generation. Do you think the future then might be, you know, the future of Western politics might be quite Trumpian in that it's, it's signalling almost performative protectionism while actually the global economy just sort of grinds on? Yes, which would be a better thing. And that's the politics of theatre, but and politics is often that. But yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> well, Mark, we'll end it there. I think I'm feeling slightly more optimistic having discussed this with you. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Freddie. Thank you, Kate. Very good to speak to you all. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. 